and good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's April the 12th, 102nd day of the year. 263 days remain till the year is over with. And April 12th is an interesting day. The, the holidays and observances that take place on this date. So them don't make a whole lot of sense to me, but y'all wanted them, I'm going to give them to you. It's Cosmonautics Day. Cosmonaut, national hero, made history for humankind. So he's got a special day. That's Yuri Gagarin. D-E-A-R Day. That's one of the most uh, educational celebrations of the year, apparently. It's also known as Drop Everything and Read Day. It's an annual celebration that takes place on this date. It's intended for everybody to dedicate a part of their day to reading. Some of the, uh, when I got one of my degrees at uh, UTEP, I questioned whether a couple of professors even knew how to read, but that's just me. Okay, also it's Celebrating Deckfast Day. That's when you eat your breakfast sitting at your desk. Uh, it's Halifax Day. Hamster Day. Do you know hamsters are one of the most popular pets in the United States? International Day for Human Spaceflight. International Day for Street Children. Um, you know, they're basically the forgotten ones. Growing up on the street, it uh, it's hard enough when you have a relatively stable home. International Day of Pink, uh, Martyrdom of Imam Ali Day, National Big Wind Day. You might think initially they are uh, celebrating Congress, but they're not. National Dolores Day. National for Twelves Day. National Gavin Day. Newsom had to have his own holiday, so there you go. National Licorice Day. National Mac Day. National Maya Day. National Only Child Day. National Sylvia Day. Teak Awareness Day. I walk on Your Wild Side Day. Or a star day. And uh, Yuri's night. Which celebrates uh, again Yuri Gagarin. First man to explore space that we know about. Of course there certainly could have been more. But uh, we don't know who or if they are. Now as I said today is April the 12th. And this day in. 240, Shapur I becomes co-emperor of the Sasanian Empire with his father, Ardashir I. 467, Anthemius is elevated to emperor of the Western Roman Empire. Uh, by the 400s, the Western Roman Empire was uh, a mere shadow of what it had once been. You know, the, the Roman Empire was the foremost empire in the world. Uh, but it got so big, it was divided up into two, eastern and western. And uh, the theory was that they would be equal. Well, of course, uh, the Western Roman Empire, it's um, faded. The Byzantine Empire, which had been the Eastern Roman Empire, became a major power, and then it, too, uh, fell by the wayside. 627, King Edwin of Northumbria, converted to Christianity by Paulinus, Bishop of York. 1012, Duke Aldrich of Bohemia deposes and blinds his brother, Yaramir, who flees to Poland. 1204, the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade breach the walls of Constantinople and enter the city, which they completely occupy the following day. The only really successful crusade was the first one. 
the others were cost a lot of lives and didn't accomplish a great deal. 1807, the Froberg Mutiny on Malta ends when the remaining mutineers blow up the magazine of Fort uh, Ricasoli. 1820, Alexander Ypsilantis is declared leader of Feliki Eteria, a secret organization to overthrow Ottoman rule over Greece. 1831, soldiers marching on the Broughton Suspension Bridge in Manchester, England, cause it to collapse. The rhythmic marching set up vibrations that just destroyed the bridge. 1861, American Civil War. Battle of Fort Sumter took place on this date. The war began with Confederate forces firing on Fort Sumter, which was located in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, 1862, the Andrews Raid, or the Great Locomotive Chase, as it's also known, occurs, uh, starting from Big Shanty, Georgia, now Kennesaw. Um, Union Raiders actually hijacked a locomotive, and they were going to race north, destroying track and blowing up bridges to disrupt uh, railroad commerce within the, the South. 1877, the United Kingdom annexes the Transvaal. Um, 1865, American Civil War, Mobile, Alabama falls to the Union Army. 1900, one day after its enactment by Congress, President McKinley signs the Fulrica Act and law, giving Puerto Rico limited self-rule. 1910, SMS Zerinia, one of the last pre-dreadnought battleships built by the Austrian-Hungarian Navy, is launched. It's bad when, from the moment it's created, a ship is outdated. 1917, World War I, Canadian forces successfully complete the taking of Vimy Ridge from the Germans. 1927, Shanghai Massacre. Shanghai Shek orders the Chinese Communist Party members executed in Shanghai. It ended the first united front. 1927, Rock Springs, Texas is hit by an F5 tornado that destroys 235 of the 247 buildings in town, kills 72 townspeople, and injures 205. It's the third deadliest tornado in Texas history. 1928, the Bremen, a German Junkers W-33 type aircraft, takes off for the first successful transatlantic airplane flight from east to west. 1934, the strongest surface wind gust in the world at the time of 231 miles per hour is measured on the summit of Mount Washington, New Hampshire. Uh, it has since been surpassed by other wind gusts. Also in 1934, the U.S. auto light strike begins, culminating in a five-day melee between the Ohio National Guard and 6,000 strikers and picketers. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. That snuck up on me. 1937, Sir Frank Hoodle ground test the first jet engine designed to power an aircraft at Rugby, England. 1945, President Roosevelt dies in office. Vice President Truman becomes president upon Roosevelt's death. <coughs> 1945, World War II. U.S. 9th Army under General Simpson crosses the Elba River near Magdeburg and reaches uh, Tangamundi. That's just 50 miles from Berlin. It had been decided for political reasons to allow the Russians to reached Berlin first. 1955, the polio vaccine developed by Dr. Jonas Salk is declared safe and effective. Uh-huh. 1961, space race. Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin becomes the first human to travel in outer space and perform the first crewed orbital flight in Vostok 1. 1963, the Soviet nuclear-powered submarine K-33 collides with the Finnish merchant vessel MS Finclipper in the Danish Straits. 1970, Soviet submarine K-8, carrying four nuclear torpedoes, sinks in the Bay of Biscay four days after a fire took place on board. 1980, the American-Liberian government of Liberia is violently deposed. 1980, also saw the Transvaal Flight 303, a Boeing 727 crash on approach to Herculeo 
Blues International Airport in uh, Florianopolis, Brazil. 55 out of the 58 people on board are killed. Also in 1980, Canadian runner and athlete Terry Fox begins his Marathon of Hope run in St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, um, okay, <clears throat> in 1981, we saw the first launch of a space shuttle, the Columbia. STS-1 was the mission. 1983, Harold Washington's elected as the first black mayor of Chicago. 1990. Jim Gary's 20th Century Dinosaurs exhibition opens at the Smithsonian <coughs> in Washington. He's the only sculptor ever invited to present a solo uh, exhibition there. In 1992, the Earl Disney Resort officially opens with its theme park, Earl Disneyland. The resort and its park's name are subsequently changed to Disneyland Paris. 1999, President Clinton, my cousin, Decided for contempt of court for giving intentionally false statements in a civil lawsuit. He's later fined and disbarred. 2002, a suicide bomber blows herself up at the entrance to Jerusalem's Mahim Yehuda Market, kills seven and wounds 104. When it shows you the impact of a suicide bomber, nobody remembers why she did it. 2009, Zimbabwe officially abandons the... Uh, Oh, 2007, we had a suicide bomber penetrate the green zone and detonate in a cafeteria inside a parliament building. Killed Iraqi member of parliament, Mohammed Awad, and wounded more than 20 other people. And ruined everybody's lunch. 2009, Zimbabwe officially abandons Zimbabwe in dollars, its official currency. 2010, the Murano derailment, a rail accident in South Tyrol kills nine and injures 28. 2013, two suicide bombers killed three Chadian soldiers and injured dozens of civilians at American and Kadal, Mali. And in 2014, the Great Fire of Valparaiso ravages the Chilean city of Valparaiso, kills 16, displaces nearly 10,000, and destroys over 2,000 homes. Well, <clears throat> interestingly enough, All these suicide bombers who thought they were going to accomplish so much. Um, nobody remembers why they did it. They just remember it was done. So, with all this death and destruction, all in the name of religious differences, it just really makes no sense. you got religious fanatics, such as those running Iran, who want the worship of the, the deity, if you will, to be their way and no other way. And if you want to worship some other way, they're going to kill you. All in the name of peace. Well... got a story going back to the ghost of Las Vegas about a young man who was on top of the world and who's also a world class um, poker player they met their end at a motel in a forgotten part of Las Vegas one of the two would have um, like what you might call an extended stay now there's parts of Las Vegas that literally have been forgotten. On one of our last trips, I, I just took a little exploration off the strip. And I was amazed at what I found. It's like going to another world. Well, in this particular case, it was, uh, wasn't the best part of town. But as the individual... who entered this area, thought to herself a job was a job, and she's happy to have one. 
even if the job was at the place called the Oasis Motel. It was located on the Las Vegas Strip, not the glitzy, well-lit part of the Strip that everybody visits, but uh, the seedy, prostitute-ridden, junkie-strewn, wino-infested habitat tourists only find themselves in when they've gone too far from the dome canopy of Fremont Street. This area of towns known generally as the Naked City. Now, the Oasis was a rundown, pay-by-the-hour, adult-themed motel nestled between liquor stores, pawn shops, wedding chapels, and similar adult-themed establishments. The sign outside the hotel welcomed guests to the Oasis Fantasy, boasted rooms and adult videos, even indoor plumbing. Sherry Alvarez not only worked as a clerk at the hotel, but also lived there with her husband. She wasn't particularly proud of where they lived, but once again, you know, a job was a job. It was a Sunday evening, about 9 p.m. when this event happened. She was sitting at the front desk and leaning out the window used for evening guest, talking to one of the lower-end ladies of the evening who went by the name of Jasmine. And out of the corner of her eye, she noticed a young man entering the um, parking lot. Wore khaki shirt, jeans, black tennis shoes. Had on glasses, was carrying an armful of escort magazines available for the taking and racks along the strip. And he approached her and gave her a smile and said, Can I get through here? She said, well, it's not a good idea. This area of town isn't the best. It's called the Naked City because there's a lot of crime. What are you doing in this area anyway? And he said, well, I'm just out walking. And uh, Jasmine, I mean, uh, the desk clerk said, well, this isn't the best place for you to be. And then Jasmine got in the conversation said, you look like a movie star. And he said, I'm certainly not. Then he opened one of the escort magazines he was carrying and started looking at the advertisements. Jasmine uh, had to put her two cents, one set, two cents worth in and said, you won't find anything in there. Those girls are all hookers and the services are nothing but a ripoff. Young man smiled at her and continued to look at the girls in the in the magazine. Jasmine finally said, "Well, why don't you give me the money? I'll take care of you, honey." Well, at that point, uh, Sherry thought it was best to leave the two alone to work out their deal. Jasmine was just plying her trade, and she didn't need anything anybody hanging around while the price was negotiated. So Sherry went into the the office while the two talked. Of course, officially, the motel didn't rent rooms to prostitutes. Prostitution was, after all, illegal in Las Vegas. Now it's legal in Nevada. But everybody knew what was going on. And every few minutes, Jasmine walked in and said, I need a room. So Sherry took Jasmine's $20 and handed her the key to room number four. And she said, do me a favor, call me in about 10 minutes, Jasmine said. This guy's acting a little weird. Well, Sherry didn't know how Jasmine did it, how she was able to be with so many different men without knowing anything at all about them. And every time Jasmine took somebody into one of the rooms, Sherry just cringed. Well, after the 10 minutes had elapsed, Sherry called room four to check on Jasmine, and she answered and said, I'm okay. Five minutes later, Jasmine and the young man exited room four and went their separate ways. seven or eight hours later the young man came back this time he was met by Sherry's husband Juan who uh, the young man said can I get one of your $58 rooms and Juan said well sure gave him the key to room 20 how about I give you to you for $55 seeing it's so late and the young man smiled and thanked him and said that would be very nice 
Well, he didn't appear to be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but he did seem a little odd. Now, despite Juan's many attempts to engage him in conversation, the young man didn't respond, simply took the key, paid the, the charge with a credit card, and went to his room. A few minutes later, Juan watched the young man walk across the street and go to the nearby 7-Eleven. When he came back, he was carrying a white plastic bag. Two made eye contact, and Juan said a chill went down his spine as the young man looked at him with absolutely no expression went back in room 20. And that would be the last time anybody saw David Strickland. Live, that is. Now, if you've never been to the uh, the Naked City area of Vegas, you, you can't get a f- good feeling for the, uh, the atmosphere. But it's literally like you're in a completely different city than Las Vegas. Well... A lot of the follow-up information on what happened actually came as a result of Zach Baggins, one of the stars of Channel Channel's popular show, Ghost Adventures. He'd gotten permission to film there. He wanted to find some evidence and something that would prove Strickland's ghost still haunted room 20 of the, uh, the motel. Now, as they set up the film... The crew noticed the bedspread was soiled and the carpet wasn't uh, one they'd want to walk on barefoot. There were two large mirrors on the wall by the side of the bed. A television was squirreled away inside a fake wood cabinet located at the foot of the bed. And the beam that Strickland used to hang himself stretched across the ceiling of the room. Now, finally everything was ready and the cameraman said, ready when you are. And Baggins said, let the camera run. Well, the cameraman clicked the button on the recorder and pointed it toward the dirty tiles that lined the shower stall. The lights were off in the room and the only light coming from the, came from the video recorder itself. Well, it not soon started filming when the, the, an orb rose from the bottom of the shower and climbed the wall partway before disappearing. The cameraman was ecstatic. He said, I, I got him. I got Strickland. Well, a little bit of background, I guess, is appropriate here. David Gordon Strickland, Jr. was born October 14, 1969, in Cove, Long Island, New York. But he moved to Preston, New Jersey with his family when he was young. And while still in high school, he moved to California, landing in Pacific Palisades, a suburb of Los Angeles. By all accounts, he had no intention of getting into acting before he moved to California, but like so many before him, the lure of Hollywood took hold of the six-foot-two Strickland. He joined a theater company instead of going to college. Well, it was while a member of this theater company that the stage called. He started by performing comedy sketches and worked his way into parts in Blue, Blood Blue. I'm going to get up one more time. Biloxi Blues, Bye Bye Birdie, Danny and the... Deep Blue Sea, Pizza Man, and I Won't Dance. And as a member of this theater company, he worked as a, on a number of student films and found he actually had a bit of talent in front of the camera. In 1988, he was able to get a guest starring role on uh, Roseanne and another on Dave's World in 1993. In 1992, he landed a recurring five-episode role on the popular sitcom Mad About You, playing Hollis, a co-worker of Paul Reiser's character, Paul Buchanan, at the Explorer Channel. Hollis turns out to be a villain on the show, stabbing uh, Paul in the back. 1994, Strickland got another three-episode uh, guest-starring role on uh, as Dace on uh, Sister Sister, a sitcom starring twins uh, Tia and Tamara Mowry. But Strickland would probably best be known for the role he had at the time of his death. That of Todd Stites, a music critic in the, on the San Francisco-based magazine The Gate on uh, Suddenly Susan. He played a quirky, lovable character who suffered from a short attention span attributed to his uh, addiction to MTV. 
Well, this particular show premiered September 19, 1996. It was just entering its fourth year when Strickland's body was found. His character was slated uh, to develop a romance with the show star, Brooke Shields. Now, the week when Strickland hung himself from the beam in room 20 uh, with a king-size bedsheet, a movie in which he'd roll open on the number one spot, Forces of Nature, starred Oscar-winning actress Sandra Bullock and Ben Affleck. Film grossed $13.9 million its opening weekend. Strickland played the small role of Steve Montgomery, uh, the hometown suitor of Affleck's uh, fiancée. And while the role may have been small, his star was about to be launched. But what few people knew was Strickland had a dark side. On the day his body was found, he was due to appear to Los Angeles court to report on his progress in a drug diversion program he'd been ordered into. He was arrested October 31st, 1998, and charged with possession of cocaine. Pled no contest in December of that year and was ordered into the program. Also got 36 months probation. Had he successfully completed the program, the, the charge would have been stricken from his record. But drugs weren't his only demon. He'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, a condition that causes severe mood swings that range from lows of depression to the heights of excessive excitement or enthusiasm. When people don't know what swing, they feel sad or hopeless. They may lose interest in things that had previously been important to them. In most cases, bipolar disorder can be controlled with medication and psychological counseling. Although reports indicated Strickland was taking the mood-stabilizing lithium, it was unknown whether or not he was receiving therapy as well. Unfortunately, when a person's on the high, he or she may stop taking the medication. They don't think it's necessary anymore. And Strickland was one of those people. A few weeks before his death, he was cheerful and eager to discuss his future at an interview he gave. Well, Saturday, March 20th, 1999, he arrived in Vegas. It was a Saturday, but what he did from the time he arrived until he was found dead Monday morning is still pretty much of a mystery. Some reports indicate he was seen at the downtown strip club uh, Glitter Gulch with fellow actor Andy Dick. And Dick would later confirm he'd been with Strickland, and while he didn't know the young actor very well, he said uh, he was fun and he was a great guy. Now, checkout time at the Oasis Motel was about 10 a.m. People tended not to stay in the room very long. When Sherry didn't see any sign of the young man, her husband had checked in the night before. She decided to call the room. Phone rang and rang, and there was no answer. She said to her husband that he must be a heavy sleeper, and then she decided to go up to the room to check on him. Taking a spare key, she walked over to room 20, stood on the reddish uh, fake stones painted onto the concrete outside the door, knocked loud enough to wake the young man if he was still sleeping. No answer. Knocked again, but didn't wait for a response. Said She used her spare key and opened the door. As she slowly opened it, she was able to make out a figure fully clothed standing in the room. A chair seemed to have been knocked over behind him. And she was about to apologize for opening the door when she saw the sheet around his uh, neck. And as it re she realized what she was looking at, she started screaming. Juan heard the scream, ran to the room, only found the same sight that awaited his wife. young man had... I checked in under the name of David Strickland was hanging from a beam in the center of the room, a sheet tied around his neck. When uh, Juan got over his initial shock, he could see that Strickland was still fully clothed and his feet were still touching the floor. Only Juan passed his wife into the room and told her as he went by he's still alive. He ran to the man hanging from the sheet and started to pull it from his neck, and she was tight, too tight, and as Juan... Uh, Trying to release it, his hand touched the young man's neck. And as soon as he touched him, he knew that David Strickland was dead. He told his wife to call the police, and she was only had too happy to leave the room. While he was waiting for the police to arrive, he looked around the room and saw some empty beer bottles, couldn't find any sign of drugs, didn't find a suicide note. And uh, the bottles, there were six of them, were rain, uh, lined uh, perpendicular to the bed. 
on a line with the base of the table sitting beside the bed. The, uh, as he entered the bathroom, he saw a sight that made his heart sink. The light fixture that was part of the ceiling fan had been ripped out. Electric wires were dangling, the fixture was still hanging from them. And up at that point, uh, Juan knew the truth. Using the beam had been Strickland's first attempt at taking his life that evening. Four days later, the Alvarezes packed up their belongings and gave their notice to the Oasis Motel. They left town with their four-year-old son. Last thing they said to the motel owner was, we came for a better life, and this is not a good environment by any means. Well, Strickland wasn't the only famous person to die at the Oasis Motel. November 22, 1998, four months before Strickland hung himself, three-time world champion poker player Stu the Kid Unger was found dead in room six. He's known for the the round linen-like sunglasses he wore while playing. He had checked into room six on November 20th, paying $58 a night. Oh, he won an estimated $30 million in his career. He also had a severe drug and gambling habit. 1990, is found on the floor of, the, of his hotel room, suffering from a drug o- overdose. While he would eventually recover, his abuse of drugs would take a toll on his body from which he couldn't recover. In the 1998 issue of Icon Magazine, he said, I did coke to keep up. He used it as an excuse to stay up and play poker. Unfortunately, then, you take it home with you. Months after the interview appeared, he was found lying on a bed in room six, $800 in his pocket. He had just signed a contract with casino mogul Bob Stupak to assume all his debts and to front his palais. So why would Stu Unger, a world-class poker player, stay in a run-down motel in the middle of one of the worst areas of town? Then again, you have to ask yourself, why would David Strickland, a young actor with a seemingly bright future, take his own life? According to coroner Ron uh, Flood, in an interview he did in 1999, we handled 300 suicides a year, and you can ask the same question about nearly all of them. According to some reports, Jasmine whispered something prophetic to Strickland before they parted ways. She said, important changes are going to happen in your life. Corner is able to play Strickland's death at about four in the morning. Well, there's an employee of the Oasis Motel that firmly believes that room 20 is haunted. And whether it's Strickland or somebody else, it's impossible to say. What he can say is every evening he can hear a man crying out from the room. Man starts his cry at about one in the morning and stops promptly at four. And the voice, according to a number of people, only has uh, two words to say. Help me. Well, let's talk about um, Bobby Hatfield. Very successful member of the singing duo, the Righteous Brothers. Well, he had a number of successes in his career, but he also had a dark secret, one that would eventually cost him his life. Still, he did achieve all his dreams, including the first one he ever had to be good enough to play in Las Vegas. You know, I was asked when I did, uh, went back to my hometown a number of years ago on a book tour, and uh, I signed books and spoke in the first library I ever went to. And uh, somebody asked me, uh, she always wanted to be a writer. And I said, well, I had three things I wanted to do as I was growing up. If I couldn't do one, I was going to do one of the other two. And the first, I wanted to be an Army officer. Well, I achieved that until I was zigged when I should have zagged. The second one, I wanted to be an attorney. Well, I achieved that until I made the mistake of telling a judge that... uh, Blacks had the right to representation just like everybody else. He was one of the biggest segregationists in the state. 
So he had my name forged to a resignation. Since they couldn't beat me in court, they beat me administratively. And the third was write books. Now, when I was forced to retire at age 49, I had decided I was going to play video games. And I was happily playing a video game one afternoon when my wife walked in and said, Look, I'm not retired. You're not retired. Go write another book. I'd already written one, which is still selling today. I now have 60-some-odd books published. You can see them on Amazon under the name of Ken Hudnall. And it, uh, so I achieved all the, the dreams I had as a child. And the uh, interesting thing is when you achieve your dreams, what's your next goal? Everybody needs a goal. Well, let's go back and talk about Bobby Hatfield. Well, when Bill Medley, the surviving righteous brother, went back to Vegas to appear on the Orleans Hotel Casino stage, um, he was a little apprehensive. I mean, this has been... Uh, Bobby's favorite town to perform in. So they were doing a tribute concert. And Bill Medley wondered if the crowd would appreciate his solo effort, if he'd even be able to get through the first song. Well, standing behind the curtain, waiting to go on, his mind went back to that day in 2003 when he was first told that his Bobby Hatfield was dead. He said, uh, He was waiting on Hatfield to show up for that performance. And he said, this is so typical. They had started their reunion tour, and there he was standing in Miller Auditorium in Kalamazoo, Michigan, on the campus of Western Michigan University. He was only half of the Righteous Brothers, and people had paid to hear the Righteous Brothers. And he asked the managers, anybody tried to call him? And... Uh, the manager, David Cohen, said, I've tried a number of times. And Medley said, he's even in the building. And Cohen said, I don't think so. Well, then he said, uh, maybe somebody should go to his home, uh, hotel room find out where he is. Well, he was angry, of course, at being stood up. I mean, the two had just gotten back together. Medley wasn't sure if Hatfield had beaten his cocaine addiction. In fact, he had a, in fact, he had a sneaking suspicion Bobby Hatfield was still using, and this was probably the reason he wasn't there. And he, he had a serious concern about uh, Hatfield's well-being. Well, Medley continued to pace as the auditorium filled up with 2,400 fans ready to hear the songs they had grown up to love. It's like you've lost that loving feeling and unchained melody. And you remember nervously primping in the mirror, ready to read Bobby the Riot Act as soon as the concert ended. Well, about 20 minutes later, the manager came back. He had a strange look on his face and looked to be having a hard time looking Medley in the face. And Medley said, what's the problem? He said, uh, it's Hatfield. And, Hat and Medley said, well, don't tell me he's in no shape to perform. And the manager stood there for a second and said, well, Billy's dead. Medley said it felt like a kick in the gut. And years later, here was now half of the Righteous Brothers about to go on stage and sing a tribute to Bobby Hatfield. Well, he took a deep breath as he was announced, and he smiled, said a quick prayer, and headed onto the stage. When he started that first song, the crowd went wild, and Medley began to relax. And as he sang the songs that made the two of them famous, it was hard to believe his longtime friend and partner was gone. In fact, it felt as if Bobby Hatfield was standing there in his usual spot right beside him. When the show ended, and, uh, tears came to Medley's eyes as the crowd stood up in a standing ovation. Medley called the entire band at the front of the stage to take their bows, and as they waved and acknowledging the cheers from the crowd, they heard a pop coming from above their collective heads. 
Fearing for their safety, the band members jumped backward as shards of glass fell on the stage. They all looked up and saw that one of the park hands had exploded through the jail. And it was a strange feeling that came over the group and it was realized it was the park hand that would have been over the head of Bobby Hatfield if he'd been on stage in his usual position. Now, Bobby Hatfield was born August 19, 1940 in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. He was four years old. He moved with his family to Anaheim, California. While he was in the third grade, the entertainment bug bit him, and he sang uh, Shortening Bread on the local radio show. Now, he was a gifted athlete, very popular in school. He was student body president and played on his high school's baseball team. In fact, the L.A. Dodgers even scouted him. He was so talented. He also sang in his high school chorus. One year he was asked to be the master of ceremonies for his high school talent show. And a last minute decision changed his life. He said later, two days before that show, for some ungodly reason, he decided to sing. And he was never so scared in his life and also never so thankful that he had dark pants on. He sang uh, Johnny Mathis's Chances Are. And even though he thought the sound of his knees banging together was drowning out his voice, he managed to pull it off. In 1959, he graduated high school. He had the opportunity to sign with the Dodgers, and he decided not to. Instead, he decided to pursue a career in entertainment. Well, in 1962, he met Bill Medley. And the two were brought together by... Uh, Johnny Wimber is part of a five-piece band known as the Paramours. Wimber was the keyboard player. And uh, according to legend, the band was playing one night in a local bar when a black Marine shouted out, that was Righteous Brothers, after one of their duets. Well, they took the name and the Righteous Brothers were born. Well, Hatfield and Medley didn't have dreams of topping the charts, even being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Their only dream was to be good enough to play in Las Vegas. Natalie once said when they started out, rock and roll was thought to be just a fad. Some DJs are even smashing their records of the so-called devil music, so we were always talking about what we'd do next. Well, as the Paramours, they released a single called There She Goes on the Moonglow label in December of 62. Well, in... February 63, the Paramours disbanded, leaving Phil and Medley to carry on as the Righteous Brothers. Yeah, and they were certainly a perfect match. Medley's bass and Hatfield's gospel and afflicted uh, tenor created a harmonic blend that uh, was not only unique, its depth of soul often made people think they were listening to two African Americans. It also helped they were two of the few white people in California who were into rhythm and blues. They weren't out there playing surf music, Hatfield once said in an interview. They had their own style. They recorded their first album and had a minor hit with little Latin uh, Loopy Lou. And while it may have been a minor hit, it caught the attention of record producer Phil Spector, who has since been convicted of murder. The Righteous Brothers recorded two more albums before Spector bought out their contract and signed them to his uh, Phillies label. And it was with Spectre, their fame would be solidified. 1964 was a good year for the harmonic duo. Not only did they open for such acts as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, they were also regulars on ABC TV Shindig. It was that same year that the Paris Vegas Dreams came true. They were performing three shows a night in the lounge of the famous Sands Hotel. That's the place where the Rat Pack was made famous, don't you know? Also spending a lot of time in the recording studio. Doing one of these recording sessions, they produced one of their most famous singles, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. The song was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wells, specifically for the Righteous Brothers. They said later on, we had no idea it would be a hit. Too slow, too long, and right in the middle of the Beatles and the British Invasion. Not only would it become a hit, it would also have the most important quality a song can have. It had 
real staying power. Song entered the top 40 the day after Christmas that same year, hitting number one two months later. Now, songs at that point in time were short, typically two or three minutes at the most. This song was four minutes long, sparking Medley's concern about the length. And uh, to prevent radio DJs from refusing to play the song because it was too long, Spectre listed it on the label with a running time of three minutes and five seconds. Song that eventually listed as the most played song on the radio, with more than eight million recorded plays. Well, as you might guess, the group was on a high. It break the Billboard Top Ten four more times in the next 15 months. 1965, they became the first act to have three albums in the Top 20 at the same time. With Right Now and Some Blue-Eyed Soul on the Moonglow label and even lost that loving feeling on the Phillies label. Well, hearing them sing and after realizing they were white, the radio DJ took the phrase Blue-Eyed Soul from their song and used it to describe their sound. Well, Spectre tried repeating the process that had created the hit, even employing the soulful songwriter Carol King to write songs for the duo. And King, with Jared Goffin, wrote a song called um, Hung On You. Spectre allowed the duo to proceed unrestrained on the call and answer portion of the song, which was sung mostly together. Well, Hung On You was masterfully recorded and didn't catch on with DJs. Instead, they so chose to play the B-side of the record, which contained a solo Hatfield hunt recorded. That song, Unchained Melody, became a huge success, reaching number four on the top 40 charts. Well, Hatfield and Medley were the best of friends. Hatfield reportedly had a wonderful sense of humor and took every opportunity available to make his family laugh. One year after having his picture taken with Elvis Presley, Hatfield... Uh, Used a photo on his Christmas card, writing on the card from Elvis and the King. By the end of 1965, relations with Spectre weren't going well, and the pair decided a clean split with the producer was in their best interest. They almost immediately signed with Verb Records, who allowed them to produce their own work. They released You're My Soul and Inspiration, written by a man and well, and the song quickly topped the U.S. charts. Had a string of minor hits before breaking up in '68. Now, Hatfield made an unsuccessful attempt at a movie career in the film Swingin' Summer and Beach Ball, both of which he acted in with Medley. Appeared in the made-for-TV movie The Ballad of Andy Crocker, which the hopes of becoming a series and unfortunately did not. 1969, Hatfield tried to reform the Righteous Brothers, asking Jimmy Walker the Knickerbockers to replace Bill Medley. This new duo released only one album before disbanding. 1974, Hatfield and Medley reunited, signing with Haven Records. While it had been six years since the time they had played together, it was like no time had passed. Their voices were still in sync, and they produced a number three hit with Rock and Roll Heaven. They produced a couple of albums and toured heavily for the next two years. Well, Hatfield and Medley weren't heard from again until they were asked to perform for America's Bandstand 25th anniversary. And the success of that performance sparked another tour. Then in 1986, the film Top Gun brought their lost that loving feeling to a whole new audience. A year later, in 1987, Medley sang a duet with Jennifer Warren's called I've Had the Time of My Life. The song was some dirty dancing, and like the movie, was an immediate hit. The soundtrack from the movie became the most successful since Saturday Night Fever, selling 14 million copies. The day before Hatfield died, Linda's wife of 32 years drove him to the airport. She kissed him and wished him a good trip. He called her later that day and asked her to do him a favor. She said, well, depends on what it is. Can you please take a minute out of your busy schedule and call our dentist and tell him I'm in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I won't be able to make my appointment in an hour? And she laughed and said, I think I can do that. A couple hours later, he called her and told her to make sure she watched Wheel of Fortune with her mother because he thought it was funny. It'd be the last words uh, he'd ever speak to Linda. Next day, she got another phone call. It was from Bill Medley. She said, yeah, I know your voice. And he told her the worst news a wife could ever hear. He previously called friends so that Linda would have a support unit as she tried to deal with the news. And not willing to have her children find out the news through the media, she frantically called each of them to deliver the devastating news. Said it felt like forever to get in touch with them. Well, Medley called Linda throughout the night. 
Nobody in the band would leave Hatfield until they were sure they'd be coming home. I'd be told, Linda, we've been together for 42 years. We're not going to leave them alone here. Well, meddling the band brought Hatfield's body home that Friday. When they met Linda, they joked that if Hatfield had any idea he was going to die in Kalamazoo, Michigan, he'd already come up with 50 jokes about it. Well, he died November 5, 2003, at the age of 63. He had medley been inducted into the Rock Low Hall of Fame by Billy Joel only eight months before. And the, reason for, the reason for Hatfield's death originally listed as heart failure due to advanced coronary disease. It eventually amended to read acute cocaine intoxication. Well, they said, Bill and I'm like an old married couple. Most of all, I was going to miss is looking to my right and seeing my friend standing there. Well, the services for Hatfield lasted close to two and a half hours, held at Mariner's Church in Irvine with family, friends, and fellow artists in attendance. A close friend by the name of Roy Hardick uh, said the whole world was a fan of Bobby's music, but only a fortunate few of us got to know him in person. Hatfield's daughter, Valen, spoke of her parents' relationship. She said they were perfect for each other. Then in true Hatfield style, she brought laughter into the mix and said, I finally got my dad to come to church with me today. She said, I thought it'd be for my wedding, not his funeral. Not so soon. No way I'm happy because he's with God now. I'll be with him someday. Uh, I'll always be your little girl, Daddy. Well, not everybody gets the chance to sing at their own funeral, but Hatfield did. Nearly a 40-year-old video played of Hatfield singing Unchained Melody. The crowd was brought to tears. The night the park can fell in front of Bill Medley and his band wasn't the only time Hatfield's presence was felt on stage at the Orleans Hotel Casino. One employee who worked with the Righteous Brothers said, I can feel somebody walk by and brush my hair. But when I turned around, there wouldn't be anybody there. At Orleans Hotel Casino, employees have also reported seeing a man walking down the hallway near the stage in a patterned shirt like the one Hatfield is known to wear. He also noted one occasion when nothing in the showroom seemed to be working properly. This was specifically noted by the lighting person who couldn't get his board to work correctly. The crew knew the cause of the problem when one of them remembered it was Hatfield's birthday. And maybe Hatfield took a cue from the film that made his song Unchained Melody a renewed success in 1990. Movie starred Patrick Swayze, who coincidentally played a ghost in the title role. Hatfield's death, he and Melody had discussed making their current tour the last one they'd do. They even had a name for it the last time around. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about some really strange occurrences that have been reported in Las Vegas. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.